My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Today, we're going to be showing our friends, Andrew and Lisa, the basics of the internet, and we thought you might want to come along. The internet gave us a whole world of exciting new possibilities. So I guess this is a story of how it changed our lives. Maybe it will yours too. Do you, by any chance, remember being warned by your parents about the dangers of the internet? You were probably cautioned about online predators, about chat rooms being filled with old pedophiles who wanted to lure children out to meet them. You were probably warned about scams designed to steal your identity. If you're old enough, you may have even been warned just about the dangers of too much time in front of a screen. Or you might have been told not to tie up the phone line with your dial-up connection. Our parents were very concerned with what the internet would do to their kids. And now, a generation later, their kids are concerned by what the internet is doing to them. Older people are more likely to share disinformation. They are more likely to fall for online scams. And in many cases, they're as vulnerable to being preyed upon online as they feared that we were as teenagers. Only it's not pedophiles stalking them across the internet, it's algorithms. As social media companies find ever more sophisticated methods to keep us online and keep us outraged, the digital literacy that many of us have acquired through lives lived online from a young age can help us navigate dangerous waters. But the older you are, the less digitally literate you're likely to be. So a generation after our parents tried to save us from the internet, how do we save them? Jordan Heath-Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Bonnie Christian is a contributing editor at The Week. She also writes a column entitled The Lesser Kingdom at Christianity Today, and she is a fellow at Defense Priorities. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. I think we have uh, a common thread, and I think a lot of people listening who are about our age uh, probably have it too. So why don't you start by rewinding to a time for me it was the late 90s, maybe a little later for you, but take us back to how the parents of our generation approached uh, the internet. Yeah, well, so my experience, and I think many people's experience, it sounds like your experience, was that there was a real uh, caution, a real concern about the early internet, particularly like children, young adults using it uh, on their own without supervision and, you know, without good judgment to recognize what could be dangerous. I think there were concerns about, like, the amount of time that we spent online. There were concerns about catfishing. Uh, I think the, the 
the fear back then was like you would be in an AOL chat room and someone pretending to be your peer who's actually like a an adult pedophile is going to lure you, you know, out and kidnap you. Um, mm -hmm. There were concerns about porn. I remember um, in my high school uh, computer class, they, they really drilled into us that you always needed to Google before you went to a website because if you just typed in a URL and maybe you misspelled it, all the pornographers bought up all the misspellings of the websites that kids would want to go to. So you misspelled Disney.com and just like, boom, it's going to be the huh. worst thing ever. That, I never heard that one. Yeah, I, I don't think it's true, but there was a lot of <laughs> concern. And, and in a sense, you know, I think real concern. There, there are a lot of bad things on the Internet. Did we know um, at the time what the real dangers of the rise of the Internet would be? <laughs> I don't think anyone back then anticipated I mean, maybe, you know, professionals, but in, in sort of like the common uh, understanding, I don't think anyone anticipated what social media would be like um, and how it would affect us and how it would really affect like our, our thought patterns and, and the way we consume information and the way we vet information. Um, I don't think anyone really guessed what that would be like. How did we learn exactly what uh, the internet, but yeah, in particular, social media was doing to our brains? And what do we know now um, about what's happening in our heads? Yeah, so there's been there's been increased attention to this um, for some time now. One uh, book I mentioned in my article, which is um, a good read, though I, I wonder if he's um, going to put out an updated edition to address more of social media, because it was, it was published in, I believe, 2011, is a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, um, written by a guy named Nicholas Carr. And he focuses really on the effects of the medium, how it, it, it changes how we think. Um, it makes, it shortens our attention span, it, it interrupts our ability to concentrate, our ability um, to just sort of contemplate or meditate with our own thoughts. Um, and, you know, he wrote that almost a, a decade ago now, um, you know, before Twitter was really a thing in the way it is now, Instagram didn't exist. Facebook was was very much like a place for just sort of meaningless little friendly interactions. And so since then, I think all of the trends that he identified early uh, have only accelerated and uh, the, the introduction and increasing ubiquity of social media, um, it, you know, it really is designed to addict us in a sense. I don't think that's too strong a word. It's, it's all very carefully designed by very smart people for return usage to get us picking up our phones 500 times a day. And, and that's not an exaggeration. You know, we pick up our phones hundreds of times a day. We go to these sites dozens of times a day. And uh, that, that can't help but change how we think and, and what we think about. Who is most vulnerable to that kind of manipulation, I guess, if you want to call it that? Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, I think we're all vulnerable. That said, I did write the article with a, a generational angle and did focus on older people. Um, my, my parents are in the boomer generation, as are, I think, you know, um, the parents of most of my peers. And what's, what's different generationally um, is that we do find that older people are more likely to share misinformation um, and that, like, to share it unwittingly. And that age more than other demographic indicators like education or political perspectives, um, wealth, things like that. Um, age is the by far and away the, the most determining factor of that likelihood. And uh, anecdotally, you know, that, that is something that uh, I've encountered again and again with um, friends of mine, with readers online, both before this article came out and certainly after, that this is a, a, 
a problem. Um, and again, by no means exclusive to one generation. There are, are, are plenty of younger people who have very dysfunctional internet habits, um, in which I very often would include myself. But, but there is a, 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 a sense in which older people can be more vulnerable because of the lack of um, digital literacy just by the pure happenstance of how old they happen to be when this stuff came into being. That's really interesting because we often talk, and I mean, to your point at the very beginning when we talked about uh, what our parents were concerned about, you know, we talk about vulnerable young minds being manipulated and preyed upon. And and this is an example, again, not not exclusively, but uh, but it's an example of the opposite. Yeah. And, you know, I, by mo- no means do I want to suggest like, oh, turn your kids loose on the internet unmonitored. There's, there's definitely very right. real vulnerability there too. I think... What is so interesting and so troubling to me, though, is that it is the very generation that 20 years ago was telling us, please be careful. Um, And they were right to tell us that, that now it feels like Mm -hmm. they're not being careful. Um, And, you know, the the relationship and the, um, you know, sort of authority of parent to child is very different from child to parent. And so, you know, they could tell us, I'm, you know, putting content blockers on our internet. You can't go to these sites. So we can't do that to them, um, you know, because there are no. parents and they're adults and they make their own choices. Um, and so it is a, a really difficult position, I think, for people who find themselves in this situation worried about what their parents are consuming on the internet um, or, you know, other loved ones, other f- family members or friends and feeling sort of helpless of like, how how can I show you, um, how can I convince you that, that this these habits you're building are detrimental? Can you give me uh, maybe a bit of a, a deeper example of what that lack of digital literacy looks like in practice? Like what – using generalities for the generations because I know that you know we're not talking about anybody here. But, but what do people in our generation grow up recognizing that maybe our parents just don't see? I'll give two examples. One I think is that the, the graphic design is key. Um, you know, for for someone of our age and younger, how a website looks communicates a lot about its credibility. Um, and these tend to be, you know, often very small things. And it can be very difficult to describe, like, what you see if you're not an expert, you know, if you don't have actual graphic design expertise. It can be very difficult to say, like, here is specifically what I see on this website that makes it untrustworthy to me. Um, and and that that very inability to describe it makes this so hard to communicate um, to people who who don't sort of share that um, innate understanding, if you will. Uh, I think that we we need to think about you know we talk about digital literacy, and that suggests that if you just sort of study it, you'll you'll pick it up and you'll understand. Um, but I think we would do better to not do the the comparison to reading, but do the comparison to to learning another country's culture. Um, You know, it's so many tiny little things and it's very hard to just sit down and say, I'm going to study the culture of another country and I'm going to understand it. You you don't really learn it in that detached way. You learn it by exposure. But of course, exposure itself, when you don't know what you're looking at, is risky. Um, Another example I'll give is that older people, uh, and we have polling data on this, which I cited in the article, they tend to not be aware that there are algorithms selecting the information that they are shown when they're browsing the internet. Um, So many think that, many simply don't know um, how the decisions are made that 
determine what you see like in your Facebook news feed or your Twitter feed. Many tend to think that it's at random. Some people think it's selected by like journalists who work for Facebook or for the news outlets. Um, uh, and But older people, 65 plus, are less likely than any other age group to understand that it's actually selected by algorithms um, based on what the the computer analysis thinks will interest you. Um, and saying what it thinks will interest you is, is I think, really too mild of a descriptor because... Um, you know, it's it's really more like what will set your lizard brain on fire and and cause some intense emotion in you that gets you to click this and gets you to share it because we don't click on and share things that we're just like, oh, huh, okay. Like things that, that cause a reaction in us and preferably an intense reaction are what drives us to be posting and sharing and commenting. And posting and sharing and commenting is what, you know, the social media companies want us to do. Have you had conversations with your parents about this? And and how do those conversations go? Because uh, I certainly have. I bet a lot of people listening have. And they don't always go great. Yeah, I have had conversations. Um, Not my dad. He's not online at all, which is great. Um, But I I have had conversations. uh, And it doesn't go very well. Um, I think part of it goes back to what I was talking about, about how it can be so difficult to communicate what you see that is untrustworthy on a a page Mm -hmm. or a video or what have you if the other person doesn't just instinctively see it. And then part of it is also, you know, it's very difficult for a conversation, you know, an isolated conversation here and there, even if if the conversation seems successful and constructive and, like, you guys have reached real understanding in the moment, um, if there's just, like, a daily grind of content consumption the effects of of a few conversations here and there are limited and you can't harangue people, you know, you can't harangue people all day, every day about what they're looking at on the internet. Like that's dysfunctional too. So yeah, I have had conversations and I I don't have, you know, any, I don't know that I have any real wisdom about what works, I guess, um, and what doesn't. And I think to some extent that's going to, you know, vary by the, the people and the relationship, but in the sense of broader tips, I don't know. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Do you think that older people who do fall prey to this kind of stuff um, are more or less likely to to understand or misunderstand the boundaries between uh, the internet and real life and and where they blur and and don't exist anymore? Again, I'm asking just uh, anecdotally because that is something um, that I still find uh, in the minds of a lot of uh, the older people in my life is that, that they consider the internet not real. Yeah, and and this is something, you know, I wrote this article well before um, what happened in the Capitol this past week in Washington. But of course, now it's impossible not to to think about that, you know, in in the context of this subject. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's where I was going. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I will say that to some extent, I was surprised by what happened, not because I didn't, you know, take seriously the... Uh, the president's rhetoric or like the grievances that that crowd would cite. Like, I think those grievances are very sincerely held, but because there had been a sense in which 
it, it sort of seems like they were getting all of their um, extremism out on the internet, right? Like that they were um, sort of play acting the fighting that happened in real life that spilled over into real life. Um, it, it's hard to say. I, I feel like in some sense we're in the early days of a of a new thing, or maybe we're at a turning point where we'll have to sort of wait and see, you know, is it going to continue to be something that in a real extent stays online, you know? And to be fair, most people who are involved, who believe these conspiracy theories about the election and who are involved in this uh, sort of content consumption and distribution online, the vast, vast majority of them, of course, were not in Washington and were not storming the Capitol building and have never done and maybe would never do anything like that. And so maybe that that boundary of thinking of the internet as not real or of getting out that energy and that anger online and not so much bringing it into real life, maybe that is still there to some extent. Um, the two things I would say against that, though, is uh, in my in my piece, I, I quoted a, an account from I believe it was a young man who was saying that his his father consumes Fox News just all day long, you know, from 6 a.m. in the morning, starting out with Fox and Friends to, you know, 11 at night with the evening lineup, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, that lot. And the whole time he's, you know, on the father's on his phone and he's sharing memes and he's arguing with strangers on the Internet. Um, and it's so much so that this 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 fixation has become so strong that the father has become estranged from one of his brothers because they argue about politics so much and they can't seem to stop themselves. And the father's doctor said, you know, this habit of content conception is a contributor to your heart attacks and he still won't stop. And so I think if it reaches that level, you know, it becomes very hard to say this is a purely an online phenomenon, right? And then the other thing I would say in regards to what happened this past week is it can be a purely online thing for the vast, vast majority of people, but you only need a few, right, to go to go wild and, and do crazy things like what, what happened. And so I think we can per, perhaps what where we may end up is a, a situation of saying, you know, mo- for most people, this is only doing damage in their brains and in their personal lives for if there may be a few people that take it significantly farther. Well, how much of the events of the past year have exacerbated this because I know that um, you know social media rotting our brains has been a long time coming and a long slow progression. Um, but we've also covered on this podcast the fact that COVID has isolated a lot of elderly people who have no other connection to the world. Yeah, and that's a huge part of it. And and one generational distinction that I wrote about is that, um, and this is anecdotally, but it it seems like pretty much every time I talk to a peer about. Uh, their parent um, or love other loved one sort of getting into this dynamic, they say, you know, my mom doesn't really have close friends or like my dad has no hobbies. And so the, the, there's this aspect of the, the online activity is substituting for, um, you know, the real life communities that they should have and that, you know, everyone needs. And the pandemic has absolutely exacerbated that just in the sense of people who are abiding by the public health restrictions or, you know, whether voluntarily or for fear of consequences or what have you, um, if they're older and they're less digitally literate, they may struggle to do the sort of online um, connections and, 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 you know, hangouts that, that younger people have done. And so that that takes a, a bad problem of maybe only having a few friends and makes it much worse where they're, they're not having, you know, they can still talk on the phone, but face-to-face time matters. And, and if you can't really manage that, 
digitally and you can't go visit people, that's incredibly isolating. And I also think it comes at a time when, you know, the pandemic is is frightening and people are looking for answers and people are looking for like tidy and all-encompassing theories that explain why is this happening to us and, you know, what can be done to stop it? And, you know, is someone at fault for this? And conspiracy theories and misinformation, um, they often provide those answers in a way that real life doesn't. Conspiracy theories tend to be very tidy. They have an answer for everything. Um, and that explanatory power can be really comforting, can be really powerful. Uh, and it's, I think in this past year, it's between the election and the pandemic, those perspectives that once we would have thought like, oh, that's very fringe, you know, it's not something quote unquote normal people are going to encounter. It is coming into a lot of really normal social media spaces and it's being spread and it's being spread crucially by your close friends and family, people whom you trust. And so, you know, you log into Facebook, you come across some wild link, it's shared by your sister-in-law, you think, oh, you know, she's a really reasonable and trustworthy person. And so you click that link and you go into it expecting it to be true because your sister-in-law shared it. Um, And it offers, you know, this very convenient explanation that fits with all your political priors about what's going on in the world. And you're off from there. Is there anything that can be done uh, to mitigate this? I know we're not taking away mom or dad's phone. Um, <laughs> I know this problem is not going away overnight. But do we have any idea of, of things that can help? I mean, I, I think that if you are in a position, and this will be a lot easier for people who live near their family um, and can interact with them in person on a regular basis um, than trying to do it remotely. But if you can you know, really sit down and have conversations that that do try to get at some of the explanations of um, the digital culture that the the older person may not understand. Like if that's possible, if they're open to that and you can have those conversations, you know, in a, a friendly and kind way, I think that is worthwhile. I, I recently read some advice and I don't know if this is good or not. I think maybe it is to say, um, you know, when you're you're trying to push back on misinformation, instead of framing it as, uh, you know, I read in the news that X, um, just present the information and sort of uh, couch it around your own trustworthiness and your own credibility and your own, you know, relation- loving relationship with the person you're speaking with. Um, because if, if they already mistrust uh, media sources, then saying, you know, I read this news article, that's going to make the conversation more difficult than it needs to be. And so the idea of, of sort of, instead of trying to, to argue over facts and sources, maybe focus on, you know, you, you know that I want the best for you. You know that I'm not trying to lie to you, even if you distrust, you know, some of these things that you're seeing or you distrust the media, what have you, um, you know, let's just the two of us have a conversation. Um, and then a third thing that I, I, I recently came across, which I think is is good advice. Um, it was a quote from a, a book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, a, a theologian from around a century ago, talking about conspiracy theories and about that tidiness that they offer. Um, and his his advice was um, instead of trying to to talk them out of the theory, um, give them more air. And what he meant by that was like you know sort of it. it 
remind them that there's a whole a whole world out there, that there are other things to do and think about better things to do and think about. And there are, you know, friendships to be had and places, beautiful things to see and beautiful places to go, um, experiences to have. And that idea of not necessarily trying to have these these bickering arguments about the details because you're probably never going to win um, just by the nature of how many conspiracy theories work. But maybe if you can, you know, go to the park together every week and you can have family dinners together together every week, maybe at a certain point the phone becomes a little less attractive. That sounds like my parents telling me to shut the damn screen off and go outside. I know it does, and it's such a strange position to be in to have it reversed. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for uh, walking us through this today. Yeah, thank you so much again for, for inviting me on. Bonnie Christian of The Week and Christianity Today. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. We will try not to spread disinformation if you are an older person. You can yell at me right there. I promise I probably deserve it and you probably needed to hear this. You can also email us if you're more old-fashioned, thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. And of course, you can find us in your podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. Please rate us. Please review us. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.